Welcome to the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada, a podcast about ex-cadet women mentoring and building community together. I'm your host, Amanda Calhouse, a graduate of the Royal Military College of Canada, class of 1994 in electrical engineering. So good evening. Tonight I have with me Suzanne Raby. How are you doing, Suzanne? I'm fine. How are you doing, Amanda? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining us on the Women's Mentoring Network podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. It's actually great. I think we've had a just a couple of women from the class of 1984, and I'm excited to hear other perspectives because there are at least 32 of them, right? <laughs> <laughs> but not all 32 have graduated, though, although 32 started, right? Yeah. True. Yeah, but it gives you 32 different perspectives on that time period, any piece of that time, right? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about, obviously I've given away when you graduated, but tell us a little bit about when you studied at RMC and what you're doing now. Okay, well, I'm going to take you guys back over 40 years. Like some of the people mm-hmm. listening weren't even born then, but 41 years ago, I was um, a young woman living in a military family like so many other people who joined the military my dad was in the forces and he joined in 1950 he served until 1980 so 1980 rolls around i'm in my last year of high school and i'm in lar so lar was part of west germany back then right Right. before before the wall came down and before the two consolidated into germany So uh, we were a little base in the southern part of Germany in the Black Forest and I was studying there and the school had no more than 500 people. And I remember clearly uh, in my last year, military people came to our class and talked to us about, about a career in the military. And I had worked at base supply. I worked in base maintenance as a civilian before. So I, I knew the environment and I thought it would be great. So, um, you know, I applied and I had really good marks in high school. I was extremely athletic and uh, yeah, I got accepted as one of the first 32 women to go to military college. So there I was leaving Germany. I hadn't been to Canada for six years. You know, I left wow. when I was 12. So I, I landed in uh, back in uh, Ottawa that year. And I'm telling you, then uh, the next day we were a whole bunch of people, a couple hundred uh, all standing in like, shirts you know with ties and right. dress pants and you know the name tag on going uh, to uh, Chilliwack get there and you know I do my basic officer training course which at the time was in Chilliwack British Columbia then then the real fun starts right <laughs> yes I, I remember that maybe yeah. not so fondly but I remember that <laughs> so I don't know did you go through um I went, went to Chilliwack. RMC and Chilliwack as well right I so did. Yeah, yeah so we flew out get into Ottawa, then take the bus down from, I think we actually flew into Trenton and then we took the bus up to Kingston. And it was a late, it was late in the evening in August, right? And so we get off the bus and wow, it was misty on the parade square. And there was, you know, those lantern style light posts and um, a piper was piping and it was very intimidating, you know? (laughs) (laughs) So I, I, uh, I started at RMC, Royal Military College of Canada in 1980 and back then everybody started off in engineering 
Everybody. Wow. Yeah. I was surprised to learn that. I, although apparently it was still the same in 1990, and I I just was ignorant of the fact because because I was uh, an engineer. <laughs> yeah. No, that's true. So when we went there, we all had to have good science marks and uh, yeah. science and mathematics. You know, at the time when I joined in 1980, there were 5% women in the Canadian Armed Forces. Wow. So what does that mean? That means that not all occupations were open to us. Yeah. Very few. And that year, as every year, there's a dog and pony when other officers, serving officers come, usually the rank of captain, and they talk to you about what career options are available for you. And at the time, I had... I had something in my head that wasn't going to pan out. So I, I chose to go logistics and I became a movement and transportation specialist. And um, yeah, I graduated in 1984, the first class of women. I finished academically uh, first in my degree program, which was a Bachelor of Commerce. And I did really well academically and I was very physically fit. And uh, yeah, I went on to serve for 38 years. I had, amazing. Yeah, an amazing career. I was extremely happy with, uh, every, well, not everything, because there's always ups and downs in, in all of life, right? But um, right. for the most part, I had, a, I had a phenomenal time, and I would recommend it to anyone interested in leadership and challenging, challenging themselves and working in a team environment. It was a great opportunity. That's that's awesome to hear. And a 38-year career. When you signed up, you know, was that your plan from the beginning to to stay in for that long? No, not it's at funny. all. It's funny. Yeah, yeah. So I, I planned only, um, like when I was young, I actually wanted to become an archaeologist. And mm. all my life, I loved history. I love history. I love military history and I love medieval history. So it's kind of funny that I didn't I didn't take a degree program in history, but... You know, you have to go where the where the expertise is required. In logistics, you do need a business or administration background. Right. So I, I plan to stay in for four years and then get out. That was my goal. I wanted to get an education and I wanted to continue my life in a civilian profession. But I was given really good opportunities from the get-go. When I arrived uh, at my first posting, I thought I was going on French training in Saint-Jean-sur-Richelieu. Well... It wasn't French training. So I, I got there and I, like everyone else from RMC at the time, we all went to the, the Megaplex and sat in a, the first day you sit in the theater and they talk to you about, you know, your French language and that. And I was called up to the front and told, no, you're in the wrong spot. You're going to be the mobile support equipment officer at base transportation. I was like, what? what? I don't speak French very well. Like I had a, I had a profile, but I wasn't fluent enough, I didn't think. So there I go, off to, you know, learn about transportation. I had my specialty course already, but right. it was, yeah, I didn't, I didn't have the, I, I didn't have a strong enough French at the time, I think. Now, fast forward a few months, and I became fluent within a year. Wow. So, yeah, I had a great opportunity there. And, and from there, I went on to work at the Centre Recruitment des Forces Canadiennes de Montréal, Montreal Recruiting Center, where I, in, I became one of the senior recruiters there. I trained recruiters. Uh, I trained career, uh, military career counselors. Back then, I spoke, I was speaking in French with CCM, uh, met some fantastic people. I worked with all different occupations and trades. Uh, I did that for four years. I became an interviewer. Um, and then from there, you know, I've uh, had great opportunities given to me. 
you know, I've worked in transportation a lot. So I was the base transportation officer, wing transportation officer in Comox. You know, I had a marine rescue section working for me with two 53-ton uh, rescue boats. I worked with um, movement section. You know, I worked in Borden as well. Like all of us, all of us logisticians have to go to Borden, right? Yeah. It's, it's our home station. So I, I, I worked there. I was a desk officer, a senior desk officer for the schools that reported to the Canadian Forces Support Training Group. Okay. Uh, yeah, and then, you know, from there I went to uh, Trenton where I was the uh, officer commanding 8th Mission Support Squadron and I got to deploy overseas um, as part of uh, uh, Apatina. Uh, I was the uh, officer commanding the support trades for um, the uh, Mission Support Squadron in Camp Mirage, uh, the theater support element for Afghanistan. Right. And, and, and then I was the deputy wing logistics officer in, you know, I can go on and on, but I've had, you know, I went up to alert several times. I was selected to go to um, Joint Force Command Brunson in the Netherlands. I worked there. I supervised um, about eight lieutenant colonels, majors, uh, all different nationalities. You know, it was, then I went to the United States Central. You know, I went on and on. United States yeah. Central Command. I loved it there. I was in charge of, uh, I was actually a liaison officer for NATO there. I worked at Shape for a little while as a liaison officer. And then at the end of my career, and this is like summing all 38 years up really, really fast within five minutes. <laughs> I was, yeah, I was the deputy commander for Canadian Forces Recruiting Group. So, you know, you start by being a recruit. Right. Then I recruited. And then I was in charge of recruiting. Yeah, you went full <laughs> so, circle. Yeah, it was it was so fun. It was such a such a, a rewarding opportunity. That's awesome. So you know, you retired a few years ago. So have you been retired, retired, or have you picked up a second career, so to speak? <laughs> yeah, I didn't think it was time for. Me. So I retired because my husband and I we were building a house, and I was the project manager to build the house. So, yeah, I designed the house. Okay. <laughs> I designed the house and I oversaw every aspect of construction. So, and that was out near Meaford in the country. Right. And, um, yeah, so I didn't, I, I couldn't really devote time to both things. At the time when I retired, I retired in August 2018. The Canadian Armed Forces at that point in time were given a directive to increase the um, number of women or the percentage of women to 25% within a certain number of years. It was 10 years at the time. Okay. And so, yeah, I led a Tiger team of over 50 women from uh, all the different environments in, in the Canadian Armed Forces, as well as different government organizations. So, for example, the Coast Guard and so on, uh, status right. of Women Canada. I finished my, my job there and then Op Generation started when the uh, Canadian Forces was also augmenting and trying to get new methods and means of recruiting people. So I was also the Canadian Forces recruiting group point of contact for that. So <laughs> I was doing all these different things at once and I realized, well, hey, I'm 56 now, you know, and I can't continue like this. I have to devote my time to building my house. So. At the same time, <laughs> it's always like this with me. I never do one thing. I am always <laughs> doing 10 things at once. Just going back a bit, because this will explain what I'm doing now. When I went up to alert, I was team lead for looking at ways to support the Arctic mm. because the Air Force had taken that over from communications. Okay. So I went up to alert. I went to Northwest Territories. I went to Nunavut and we were looking at different ways of support. 
and I fell in love with the Arctic. So I also was very interested in learning that there's a mass of natural resources in the Arctic and what a precious and fragile ecosystem there is up there. And the, how could I say it? The exploitation of the natural resources could have catastrophic effects. Mm. So at that time, I began exp exploring earthquakes in the Arctic and they do exist. It's just mm. not well known. And I started to write and research and write about earthquakes in the Arctic. And that was, you know, I got bit by the writing bug. I never finished that novel because I started a novel about a catastrophe in the Arctic. That novel, it's ready to go. I have all the chapters outlined in that, but it's sitting on the back burner because when I retired, bitten by the writing bug, I became a full-time author. And I started writing in March, 2018. So before I retired, mm -hmm. a science fiction series. So um, my first book, it's, the, it's called The Flight of the Mayflower, and it can be purchased on Amazon, at Kobo, or at Barnes and Nobles. <clears throat> the Kindle is $4.99, so it's a good bargain. <laughs> uh, and the soft copy, but it's an oversized book. The soft copy is $11.99. And this book, what it's talking about, it's in the, it's in the not so distant future, so 2080. And it, at that point in time, climate change has pretty much decimated coastal cities. It's led to famine. It's led to um, mass immigration around the world. Um, at the same time, because the world is overpopulated, now I'm giving away a little bit, but not too much. <laughs> this, is, this is my first book though, so it's already out. But, but uh, in this book, what happens is there are a group of biohackers and remember, I wrote this in March 2018, who mm. put together, they splice two different things, a virus and a bacteria, into one chimera, uh, bactovirus, I call it, a bactovirus. And they propagate this throughout the world with the view of reducing the population to more uh, levels that the world can support, supportable levels. Um, at the same time, of course, we have colony being built on Mars and the powers to be realize that this pandemic cannot be stopped. So they decide that they will abandon Earth. But I have a project manager who hears this conspiracy. He overhears it when he's fixing something after a dog and pony on the space arc. Mm -hmm. And he decides with his colleagues from the other space agencies that they are going to be the survivors. So they take off and they become refugees on an alien planet and they have to learn how to adapt. So that's the first book. The, the second book is coming out at the end of the year. I just finished today. Oh, congratulations. I, I just finished, yeah, I just, it's a final edit today and I have to fix the cover. I, I don't have a picture of it here, but the cover was done and I sent it in to, uh, you know, get finalized. And I, I don't like, I'm not entirely satisfied with it. So uh, yeah, that's, that's what I've been doing. And I, I insert into that a lot of military activity because it's my background. Right. So I have, I have a pilot in there. I have a security officer in there. You know, I have a, I actually have a botanist too. And I have, I have all sorts of different people. I have children. I have, uh, you know, everything's going on. There's a little bit of there in there for everybody, I think. So uh, that takes up all my time, but I'm also working on other projects too. So I have a, 
a large lot here and we planted a large orchard and garden and <laughs> wow. we just yeah we're just finishing our uh, harvest right now of something so I'm kind of splitting my time in two <laughs> and that's what I've uh, I've been uh, busy with that since my retirement Wow, that's amazing. It's interesting to, you know, think about second and third careers that people go on to after the military, but writing science fiction is, uh, um, would you say science fiction? Is that the right genre? Yeah, I think so. Someone, something actually wrote it's climate fiction, but it's really not. They just read the beginning and then they said, oh, it's climate fiction. I'm not into climate. So they just stopped. But there's a lot of military action and um, smuggling and, uh, you know, yeah, (laughs) all sorts of stuff in there. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting to, you know, sort of see where things go and what people choose to do. But, you know, are there some things that you learned about yourself while you were at military college? And, you know, did you realize it then or was it much later on? Yeah, you know, I think it's, um, it's a very good question. And I think that... I, when I went to military college, I was really a young person. I was extremely bright, but I wasn't reflective. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm the t- I was, I've always been the type of person where I jump in with two feet and then think later, well, that's not necessarily good, right? Yeah. So what I learned at military college was to be very organized, which has helped me a lot in my life. It also taught me to be, like I'm, I'm pretty much an introvert, although I really like being around people, but I get my energy like as an introvert does. Yeah. So while I was there, I learned to be more flexible and to, um, I won't say, and to develop teamwork with others. And that's something that allowed me to become a flexible leader, more confident, I guess, too, because mm-hmm. you're put in situations where you have to enlist the assistance of others and develop plans to overcome obstacles. So yeah, I became a more flexible person, more organized person, a more assertive person. And I learned a lot about leadership as well as meeting very good people at RMC. Have you been able to keep in touch with classmates you had or? Uh, some of them, yeah, but I was in so long. I've, I've worked with thousands of people. So, you know, I do keep in contact with people from my class. Absolutely. Um, you know, I absolutely do. And I keep in touch with a lot of the people who I served with as well. Yeah, your, your network just grows exponentially the longer you stay in, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it becomes like a family, right? Right. As we think about that and, you know, the the people that you worked with, did you have mentorship from other women as you went through your career? And I, I, I'm guessing with 5% women who joined, <laughs> the, the answer is a quick no. But, um, I'm but, laughing. But, no. But, you know, over the 38 years of your career, did you sort of witness that change where you were able to then at least provide that to others? Well, I'll, I'll have to stop laughing because there was mentorship, actually. I, I would say no in the beginning, but I have to reflect on it. I just said I wasn't reflective. But, but, you, know, <laughs> but you know, when we went to RMC uh, in our first year, we did have one female squadron commander. And back then there were eight squadrons with uh, regular officer training program uh, cadets right. other than otter squadron. So it was one of the female captains one of the captains was a female and she did her best to help us 
but she was one woman surrounded by all these other guys. Yeah. So um, a lot of things she did help. And some of the things that they never thought of at the college were hands, right? So women's hands are generally smaller than men's hands. And I'm saying this because, you know, when you're on parade, you have your white gloves and you have to put your bayonet back in the scabbard, right? Right. Well, my gloves, I have small hands. I'm not a small person. I have small hands. Yeah. <laughs> and my, my fingers on the gloves would be too long. And I would put the bayonet in and I would snag my fingertips and then tear my gloves. So it's things like that. We could go to her for, and she would bring that up through the chain of command and action would or would not be taken. Right. In transportation, the only senior person in me was a major and she was far away. So I did not have female leadership or that served as mentors for me. But I found that many of my male bosses uh, were fantastic mentors, uh, regardless of your gender. They recognized that you were willing to learn and that you're willing to take opportunities and challenges and move forward with them. So I was provided with fantastic mentorship from some of my bosses. The first female boss I had was when I was a senior captain and we all worked very well together, but I, I was ready to be promoted. So, you know, there was mm. a level of that there, but I myself mentored people of all genders, helping especially civilian university women integrate into the military community just giving them guidance on what is expected and how to take things without feeling that they're being pointed at, you know, mm -hmm. because sometimes as women, we're defensive when a person might be trying to give us constructive criticism. And it's the same for men. There are men and women of all genders who uh, tend not to recognize constructive criticism for what it is. So, you know, you gently have to point that out, right? right. And, yeah, and I always have tried to be a mentor to younger women so that they can succeed and to give them opportunities that allow them to grow. And uh, I hope that I succeeded at that because it's not always straightforward. It's true, yeah. There's no owner's manual or, or <laughs> product use guide for mentorship, no, is there? <laughs> no, no. And, and people have to be honest with the person who's mentoring them yeah. so, so that the mentorship can be tailored to their desires and needs. It's an interesting field, right? You know, no instructions and you don't always know if you're getting it right or not. <laughs> no, that's absolutely true, Amanda. <laughs> I think it is important. And I know the more people I talk to, you know, the more excited I am for those that are just coming into their careers in any, in any industry, because it seems like a lot more people are taking the time to mentor others. And I do try to write that in my book, if you believe it or not. So I have oh, wow. some, yeah, I have senior officers because it is a very military oriented book after the first, after the first one. So the second one is called Descent into Darkness, very military oriented. And I have a senior officer and he's mentoring a junior female officer and he's teaching her how to not do specific things because she's like a little troublemaker, right? She, <laughs> <laughs> and he is very, very by the book and everything. He's, he's a security officer and he's trying to teach her how to be more professional because she's just a wild, crazy woman, right? <laughs> and he's, he's, he'll never tame her because that's not his goal, but he'll try to teach her how to be a professional security officer. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. I, I do write about that. Yeah. I, 
Yeah, you have to write about what you know, right? So yeah. that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> so I know it's hard to pinpoint in a 38-year career, but what have been some of the highlights for you of your career and or, or even of, you know, your most recent adventures? Oh, wow. So highlights of 38 years. Yeah, really hard. <laughs> but, you know, I thought about this, right? And I have a couple of things that I'm really proud of. And the first one was when I served with the United States Central Command out of MacDill Air Force Base in Tampa, Florida. And at that time, I was work working in combined joint 3-5, which is ops and lands. And I was the liaison officer for uh, NATO. Well, between Joint Force Command Bronson, SHAPE and NATO and the United States Central Command. And at that point in time, uh, Boko Haram had kidnapped an elderly French-Canadian nun. And um, I, because I speak Quebecois and not Parisian French, and she is a Quebecoise, I was asked to assist with securing her uh, release. So the input that I provided allowed her to be rescued. So that's something I have to be oh, wow. very proud of. Yeah, she was an elderly person with diabetes, and, you know, Boko Haram is not exactly a walk in the park, right? So right. it really, really did um, help her out of that situation, actually. And another thing, like I was mentioning, I went to Canadian Forces Station Alert a couple times, and uh, I found that as such a beautiful place. I really wanted to become the next commanding officer, but I was promoted, so I couldn't. Oh, wow. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I went up there, and I fell in love with it. Um, such a pristine place. When I finished my task, I had a team with me that was hand-selected to go up there and look at the uh, support issues. And we walked along the coastline, we walked up mountains, you know, we went all over the place and it was, it was absolutely phenomenal. I was really, really blessed to be trusted with this task and, and to be selected for that. Um, and then heading over to Camp Mirage, I was given free reign by my wing commander. At the time, it was uh, Bob Lawson, who became the, the chief of defense staff. Fantastic leader. I was given uh, the opportunity to not only hand select my team to deploy with, but to completely formulate the training, the pre-deployment training. And I was the first formed unit that incorporated conflict resolution, conflict management. And I made sure 100% of my senior staff had conflict resolution training and 25% of my junior staff so that we could handle things in theater and it was extremely successful we didn't have a lot of conflict on my tour it was so successful that it was used in future deployments so i was happy and really proud to be able to bring that tool to people's toolboxes oh, wow and then you know another thing that i found really challenging and also i would say i'm going to sound crazy but enjoyable um <laughs> when i worked with joint Force Command Brunson. I was um, I deployed as as part of a, a, a massive massive uh, exercise called Trident Juncture in 2015, and I was in a colonel's position at, in the deployment, and I had a staff of lieutenant colonels of all some of whom I had never met before, and we were in charge of movements for the entire uh, exercise, and that was about 35,000 people. And there were many, many injects thrown in and we were working like, you know, 18 hour days on that. But 
we overcame every single inject. So I was so proud of my team. Oh, wow. And that even, it even included a young woman who was with the Icelandic Coast Guard. And Iceland's not part of, uh, hmm. it was not part of the Joint Force Command, but uh, she was a young finance officer with the Coast Guard. And uh, I took her in and they asked me if I could use a person of that experience. And yeah, I trained her up <laughs> during the exercise and she became a really valuable member of the staff. So uh, I was, um, pleased with that, like really enjoyed that exercise a lot. It, it took places, I was in Zaragoza, Spain, but it was in different uh, regions as well. Oh, wow. So those are some of the things. One of the other highlights, I got to meet the queen and her husband, Queen Elizabeth II and her husband. And uh, I found that he has such a sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, that's what I should say. And the queen was just a, a lovely person. So. You know, you kind of have to say that since I have a commission in her name, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a really, it was a real pleasure to meet Her Majesty as well. Oh, that's very cool. So as we're wrapping up here, is there advice that you would want to give to any others that are either thinking about a, a career in transportation or becoming an author or any of the things that you've gone through in your career that you'd like to leave as departing uh, wisdom for them yeah that's that's good because i do actually have something to say to people you know i'm uh, i'm now 60 years old right so i've i've uh, tread this earth for six decades yeah <laughs> long long time <laughs> but anyhow what i would like to say to people listening is that you should jump at every opportunity that's given to you take every challenge that's offered to you because you should never never be afraid of failing just don't be afraid of failing because every failure has lessons that you can learn that you could take with you and that you could apply for future success and i have found out that a lot of times the first opportunity that's given to you is usually the best <laughs> that's what i found out i read i'm going to say something else i read this book by a chap named martin gray I think that was his name. He was a young Jewish boy who was involved in the Second World War, captured, thrown in concentration camps. And that was the advice that he wrote in his book. It was uh, Au Nom de Tous les Miens. That's a book that he wrote about what happened during the Second World War to him. And that was the first thing he said was that take every opportunity. And that's how he survived. So uh, that's what I'd like to say. And the last thing I'd like to leave people with is the time to follow your dreams is now. Don't wait for the opportunity, make it happen and go for it. And that's, that's pretty much what I would like to give as advice to people. I think that's fantastic advice. And I think important to remind people that not waiting for opportunity and making those opportunities, I think is probably uh, something that people can think about a little bit more as well. Before we wrap up, Suzanne, if our listeners are interested in learning more about you or your books, is there a way they can reach you or platforms you're um, available on? Yes, absolutely. I have a website. It's uh, Suzanne Ravy, Z-A-N-N-E-R-A-V-Y dot com. Or my email is, uh, it's actually the same pretty much. It's ZanRaby at gmail.com. Yeah, that's how you could reach me. Awesome. <laughs> I'm also on LinkedIn, I'm on Facebook, and I have Instagram, so I'm pretty reachable. 
Awesome. And we'll tag you on Instagram and LinkedIn. We can do both when the podcast launches as well. So you can connect directly with, uh, with our listeners as well. Oh, great. No, I really appreciate Amanda, you having me on. It's been a real pleasure. And I, I hope that everybody listening, uh, they also will share their stories and their histories. It's important for us to share things so that we grow together as as women. I appreciate that. And I think that's definitely been a goal for me is to increase the number of stories that that we're just even aware of. And so thanks so much for joining us tonight, Suzanne. And you're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Amanda. Thank you for joining us today on the Women's Mentoring Network of Canada podcast. If you're interested in being a guest on the show, please reach out to us at wmncanada at gmail.com or on Instagram. Special thanks to our podcast editor, Ethan Cuenca.